Okay, guys, on the heels of having the great Jerry Coyne on the show last week, I've got another huge evolutionist and truly one of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, David Buss. How you doing, David? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Gad? Thank you. Uh, I'm doing great and doing better now that I have you on the show. A lot of people have been wanting for us to sit down, so it's a true honor. I still remember, as though it were yesterday, I think the first time that I met you, of course, I knew of your work before meeting you, but I think we first met at the HBES conference at uh, University City uh, or University College London in 2001. Right. And right. many of the people who were in the audience that day listening to my talk are some of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology, you know, Wilson and Daly and you and, and Cosmides and Tubi. So sort of my introduction to the HBES crowd was, uh, was a, quite a baptism by fire. So that's what I remember from our first encounter. Yes. <laughs> so that was I want, a fun meeting. That was a, that, was a, that was a very fun meeting. And of course, for me, it was a great meeting because I got to meet all you guys. Uh, so I wanted to just introduce you to some of the folks who may not know of your work. Uh, so you're a professor of psychology at UT Austin. Your PhD from Berkeley, I believe. Then you went to Harvard and University of Michigan, where there are actually quite a hotbed of evolutionary behavioral scientists there. Uh, over 45,000 Google Scholar citations. I can assure the world that I will never reach that number, even if I uh, live to be 100 years. So that's unbelievable metrics. Uh, some of your books, I won't list them all. Some of the recent ones, Why Women Have Sex, The Murderer Next Door, The Dangerous Passion, uh, the one that I first read of yours, The Evolution of Desire, uh, many, many others, handbook. There's a recent handbook that came out, the Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology, the second uh, edition of that. Uh, so you're always as busy as, as always, I guess, right? Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be in a field where I really enjoy what I, what I am doing. By the way, you mentioned my book, The Evolution of Desire. That was my first book. Uh, and my uh, publisher has uh, convinced me to revise it. So I'm at the tail end of doing a, basically a thorough top-to-bottom revision because it's been um, 22 years since it was originally published, and so it's coming out uh, this fall um, with a new cover and new material, basically the last 22 years of research updated. Wow, that's unbelievable. Now, th that book is written, I mean... Of course, academics could read it and take a lot out of it, but it, it is written in a style that is quite uh, uh, readable to just a layperson who just wishes to understand how we apply evolutionary psychology to human mating, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And and the evolution of desire, I mean, I just got a t someone came up to me today. I, I get this frequently. Some people say it changed their life, their lives. They, they were having conflict in their relationship and they, they didn't understand it or uh, and they read my book and it just like the, you know, the, you know, uh, anyway, uh, and, and it's, it's still widely used in college courses around the around the, the country and, and around the world. It's been translated into something like 14 different languages. Wow. So so uh, so I'm very happy, though, to be able to revise it again and. You know, because it was my first baby, and you know, you know how you know how it is. You've written books, and you know, it's nice to sort of give them a new shelf life. Right now, do you is there? Do you get a different mechanism of satisfaction when you finish an academic paper versus when you finish a book? And I'll, maybe I'll I'll share my 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 response to that question before I open the floor to you. There is something that is uniquely immersive 
about uh, a book, right? I mean, the idea of sort of going into the proverbial cave and, and coming out, you know, 16, 18, 20 months later with a six, 700 page printout is a different sense of satisfaction than sort of the typical narrative that is implicit to an academic paper. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, one, one, I think it's different in two senses. One is that with academic papers, they're very, um, all tightly structured for you. So you, you know, you have an intro, a methods, results, discussion. And so you don't really have to think about, well, how am I going to structure this? I mean, you do within those segments, of course, but, but with the book, the analogy that I use is it's, it's writing a song versus writing a symphony where a book is, it's, it, you, it's a different, it's a different beast. Uh, and you have to, um, first of all, it's wonderful because it gives you the latitude to, uh, unfold things in a way that you don't have time to or don't have a space to in a journal article. Uh, but also you have to, you know, it has to have um, a broader arc to it where you, you don't reveal too much too soon or you you bring the reader around so that they turn a corner and all of a sudden a new vista comes up and they turn another corner, another vista opens up. And, and, that, and it's a complicated process. And people, you know, when I first did it, I was very naive. I thought, well, I've written 10 journal articles. I could just, uh, writing a book is like writing 10 chapters, 10 journal articles. I found it was nothing like that at all. Exactly. Um, it's, it's a different ball of wax, but, uh, but I, uh, I absolutely love writing, writing books. And there is something also, I think, very rewarding in writing trade books. Uh, I mean, I, we've both written a wide genre of books, academic books. In your case, you've also done textbooks. Uh, and of course, trade books, uh, there is something quite rewarding in having access to a much broader audience of having a larger platform. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the basic science and the great papers that certainly uh, we all aspire to write are not important. That's part of our job, and we're, we are always going to do that. But there is something uniquely rewarding when you know that this book is going to be read by 10,000 people rather than you know 50 people who might right. cite your academic paper, right? Exactly. And, you know, and I think that um, there we actually I mean, I take it even a step farther and say we, we have a professional responsibility because in a way society is, in, in my case, the state of Texas and uh, all the undergraduates. I mean, they're supporting us in doing the research that we do. And so why shouldn't they benefit from it? You know, why should only a handful of scholars who read the technical journals um, get that knowledge. So I feel an obligation to to transmit that knowledge to a broader audience. Oh, I'm so glad you say this because, I mean, that's very much what I try to do, say, with this series, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I'm sure that in terms of sort of the traditional metrics on an academic CV, CV it doesn't matter much. Uh, and I certainly am not making uh, much money from this other than whatever people sort of uh, give on Patreon, which is very little. And so I do this precisely because it allows a wide range of people who otherwise might have never heard of your work to suddenly now very much get excited about evolutionary psychology in general, but about David Buss's work in particular. So I completely agree with you that for too long, academics have truly lived in the ivory tower. I feel as though the metrics are starting to change, whereby yeah. uh, universities are now starting to incentivize uh, the fact that we should be building bridges with the public. Is that is that your experience at UT Austin? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say uh, that in my, it, it's, it, no, not they're not incentivizing it, but 
I would add one other element to it, which is in not only reaching the broader public, but actually reaching other academics. So a, a number of people, other professors from around the country, around the world, um, have found out about my work by reading my books. Um, you know, and so, and people outside my discipline, outside of psychology, certainly outside of evolutionary psychology, outside of psychology, people who are, let's say, biologists or physicists who pick it up. And so, and so it really is extremely useful, I think. And, and, and it's a positive thing. If it's a good quality book, I have to qualify that. Of course. You know? Well, I mean, I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking about your uh, conversation with Richard Dawkins, the eight part series. Uh, which I often uh, recommend f for my students to to watch. I mean, I don't know what the views are, but I suspect that if you amalgamated the views of, of those eight clips in terms of meme propagation, that's going to be one hell of a of a yeah. you know meme engine, right? Meme propagating engine. So it's wonderful. That's great. So I thought what we would do is go to the start. Uh, I often ask this question, certainly of evolutionists who are on my show. So what is what was the epiphany? I think we all have that moment, that sort of episodic memory where this was our first exposure either to evolutionary theory in general or evolutionary psychology in particular that said, hey, I think I found my explanatory framework. I, I think I found my scientific calling. Do you have such a short story to share? Uh, yes, I do. Um, uh, I guess it would be in, in two 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 stories, but... Um, uh, first of all, just a qualification. When I did this, there was no evolutionary psychology when I had my uh, uh, epiphany. But the first one was in an uh, when it was when I was an undergraduate, and I took a geology class. And in the geology class, I learned about evolutionary theory, and it wasn't particularly. I don't think the teacher applied it to humans. Um, he might have mentioned humans in passing, uh, but to me, it was mind-boggling because. And, and, and this speaks to my naivete at the time. I didn't realize that there were theories devoted to explaining the origins of things. And that's a fascinating thing. And I encountered it as well in my astronomy class where, uh, where I learned about, um, you know, a cosmological evolution. So evolution of the universe, stellar evolution. Um, and so I became totally intrigued by theories, big theories that explain the origins of things and why things change over time, how things change over time. So that was that. Uh, I never thought about applying it to humans um, until I read a book by um, Tiger and Fox called The Imperial Animal. That was published in 1971. I was an undergraduate and, you know, um, it, I started undergraduate in 1971. And I thought that was a fascinating book. Um, and uh, contained a lot of interesting insights. In retrospect, um, if you go back to it, it, it was a little uh, pre-scientific revolutionary, and that in that it wasn't um, Hamiltonian in nature. But uh, but it was a fascinating book and got me totally intrigued by applying evolutionary theory to humans. And so, actually, as so so when I hit graduate school, um, I started to do a little bit of research that was sort of built on some of the ideas in that Imperial Animal book by Tiger and Fox, and but did it as a sort of a sidelight. I never published anything on it. Um, there wasn't any evolutionary, no one was doing evolutionary, uh, evolutionarily guided research. 
And then, but it wasn't until um, post PhD when I got the job at Harvard, uh, where um, basically they leave you alone. So you're there to do whatever you want to do. And so I thought, you know, I could actually test some of these evolutionary ideas in a more systematic way. So I started with uh, so a long-winded answer to your question. So, uh, but um, but that was kind of the start of it. You know, the insights in the the courses, undergraduate courses that I took about the amazing uh, f- fact that there existed evolutionary theory to begin with, and then the tiger and fox that that illustrated perhaps some of these things apply to humans. Had you been exposed to any of the other disciplines that are evolutionary based that would now fall under the rubric of evolutionary behavioral sciences, so not EP, but say human ethology or uh, Darwinian anthropology or sociobiology, you know, had you been exposed to these fields or the whole notion of evolution as linked to human behavior was completely foreign to you? Yeah, no, it was completely foreign. So, but, but after the tiger and fox reading that, I started myself to read other things. So, uh, E.O. Wilson's sociobiology came out and I bought that and read that. Uh, and then read a bunch of other things. I read Ernst Meyer's, uh, uh, I think it's called the, the evolution of biological thought or something like that. Um, and, uh, but it was all on my own. There was no, there wasn't anyone doing evolutionary stuff. Uh, although it's also true that, you know, when I was at Harvard, so, so I started, I was so captivated. I started teaching my courses. The very first course I taught at Harvard was a course I took over from David McClellan, uh, on human motivation. And I used evolutionary theory as the, the kind of skeleton on which I hung everything else. And, uh, so I got one day I'm sitting in my office, William James Hall, and there's a knock at the door and it's Lita Cosmides. And, and she said, um, I hear you are using evolution in your course, and so that's how I met her. She's a, she's a doctoral student at that point. Yeah, right? she was. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was in the graduate program in psychology, and then then I became friends with her. She introduced me to John Tooby, her husband, who was in uh, bioanthro, uh, working with uh, Irv Devore, and so I became friends with both of them. And and then through them, then Martin Martin Daly, Margot Wilson did a sabbatical at Harvard. So they came, so I met them then, and uh, so it was um, it was very uh, fortunate that I you know so there was a little starting to be a little um, cluster of people who were thinking about applying evolutionary theory to human psychology. Um, so um, anyway, it was very exciting times. Wow! Uh, I mean, some of my viewers have already heard me say this and I actually discuss it in some of my writings. My epiphany, I'll repeat it very quickly, was in a first uh, semester doctoral course at Cornell. I was taking an advanced social psychology course, not at all an evolutionary course, and roughly halfway through the semester, the professor, his name is Dennis Regan, uh, assigned the book by uh, Daly and Wilson, Homicide. And when I saw the the parsimony, the explanatory power of EP. Now, my goal was to study consumer psychology, and I was very steeped into the psychology of decision-making uh, approach to things. Mm-hmm. And and so that's how I was originally bitten by the bug. Uh, and then eventually, that's how I decided to marry evolutionary psychology with consumer behavior. Um, yeah. So let's move on to some, I mean, I guess there are sort of several themes in your research. Uh, maybe we'll, we can, for those of 
for the folks who might not know it, maybe we could talk about a few of these points. And then also a few of the ones that you didn't follow too much. For example, the your paper on pa- uh, pathogen prevalence is something that you, you know, you did, a, I think, a paper on maybe, is there more than one paper or is it only one paper? Well, one paper in 1990, I did that with Steve Gangenstead exactly. in 1993. And then we also published a subsubsequent paper um, in um, that were with Marty Hazelton, right. Steve Gangenstead and I, um, I think, I'm trying to remember, maybe 10 years ago or so. On evoked culture and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, on evoked yeah. culture where we did some additional analyses on the pair. Yeah, but that wasn't a major uh, theme of my work. Yeah. So maybe we'll talk about that later, but let's start first with, I mean, you're, you're sort of the mating guru of EP. I mean, that's certainly something that we could say accurately. Uh, specifically, of course, you focus on identifying these universal mating preferences, hence some of your classic papers, sort of the behavioral and brain sciences paper, target paper, and so on. But then you sort of drill down where you look at more specific granular phenomena that fall under the mating rubric, whether it be mate derogation, uh, mate retention, uh, you know, uh, romantic jealousy, and so on. So give us a broad overview of that, of, of your interest, so that people can really get a sense of what keeps you up at night all excited about the next day's work? <laughs> yeah, okay, that was a, good, a great question. Um, but yeah, so, well, um, this was another thing, and this maybe relates to another epiphany, was encountering the theory of sexual selection. And sexual selection is, of course, Darwin, 1871, and it provides an overarching framework for for thinking about mating in, in sexually reproducing species. And so you have basically, you know, two major causal processes, uh, mate preferences or, you know, preferential mate choice, pre- mate, you know, um, mate selection. And then you also have same-sex competition, so intersexual competition. And so these are, are very broad areas, though. Uh, and so what my research, so the broad program historically is focused on, well, on the first one, preferential mate choice. When I got into it, yeah, there were a few, uh, a few studies published, not from an evolutionary perspective, but a few studies published in American journals on U.S. samples, but nothing was known about mate preferences in the world, in other cultures, in different cultures. Uh, and so, but of course, an evolutionary um, framework does predict, uh, by and large, universality. So, so, so although um, I was able to demonstrate the predicted sex differences in, in United States samples, it was really that, that first cross-cultural study was pivotal. And I think the reason it's cited so much is because it really woke people up to the notion that, I mean, people thought before then that, you know, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder, everything's infinitely culturally variable, um, you know, and I, before I did that study, I asked maybe a dozen people to make predictions about what the, what they thought the results would be. And almost everyone I interviewed, sociologists, psychologists, nobody thought the sex differences would be universal, uh, except Don Simons, uh, who, who I had I had started uh, talking to, and I think one other, um, uh, maybe a biologist. Uh, and so, and what my regret on that is, I wish I had gotten everybody to write down their predictions <laughs> in advance, because then I could, because because in hindsight, everybody goes, "Oh, I could have told you that." Right. You're, I could have told you. That. 
But nobody was predicting that in advance, except for those who were evolutionarily minded. Um, so, but but every a lot follows from that. So, if you understand sexual selection theory, you also know that the preferences of one sex in some ways drive the tactics of competition in the opposite sex. So if if it's the case that, to take a random example, that women uh, prioritize uh, resource acquisition ability in a mate, well, then that's going to create selection pressure in males, not just to compete with each other, uh, but also it's going to select for things like motivational priorities, so, you know, are you willing to, what are you willing to sacrifice in terms of opportunity costs to get those resources? What kind of risks are you willing to take to get those resources? And so it really, it really has a tremendous sort of ramifying implications for motivational priorities for, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I did the first study on a derogation of competitors, the people, the ways in which people impugn the status and reputation of their rivals to make them less desirable um, it leads to uh, implications for the tactics that people use to try to attract mates. Uh, and then also it led, um, and I did this work with David Schmidt, to the distinction between short-term and long-term mating. Because, because who you go after and the tactics you use are going to vary as a function of whether you're seeking a, a long-term committed partner or a one-night stand or, or a brief fling. Uh, and so it, and, and I guess just to, to, to ramble on about this, every time I think, well, I've sort of exhausted everything there is to know and study about human mating, more stuff comes up. And so I've studied uh, what I call the mating emotions. So we've done studies on sexual regret. You know, what do you, have you had sexual experience you regret or do you regret passing up on sexual opportunities? And there are predictable sex differences there. And then, and then the most recent one that I have not published on, but I'm very excited about, is sexual morality. Uh, and it turns out, you know, that just to give a quick preview of this, the, you know, as you know, uh, there is, there's a tremendous interest in the topic of morality these days. And there, there's John Haidt, there's people who do use the trolley problem and all that. Uh, and there are all these theories of morality, but none of them deal with sexuality right. or mating, which is quite fascinating. They, 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 talk, they deal with justice and harm and these very abstract prin uh, principles, but none of them deal with sexuality. But sexuality is the domain of human conduct that is more heavily moralized than any other domain. Right. I mean, look at, look at um, laws. Wherever there are written laws, they are... There are laws about who can have sex with whom, who can't have sex with whom, who can marry whom, who can't marry whom. And then uh, religious texts. You go to um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran. Every, every religious text has moral prescriptions about sexuality and mating and marriage. And so, um, and so I've gotten very interested in launching. So we've launched a massive cross-cultural project now to study the different elements of sexual morality. And we think it's going to really lead to um, a major upheaval in theories of morality because any decent comprehensive theory of morality has to be able to explain sexual morality and the sex differences therein. Well, I mean, there are some works that look at morality from an evolutionary perspective, and I'm thinking here 
of an edited book by David, our common friend David Stone Wilson, uh, and I can't remember the the other gentleman. Uh, but generally speaking, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, much of the work that's been done on morality has certainly not been uh, evolutionary grounded and certainly has not looked at things from a domain-specific perspective. As you were talking about sexual morality, uh, what cued in my head is the recent, reasonably recent work on disgust from a domain-specific perspective, right? right? Where you're breaking up disgust from being sort of a domain general emotion to one that recognizes that there are different elements of disgust, each of which would have evolved for different reasons, whether it be moral disgust or ethical disgust or sexual disgust or pathogenic disgust. So yeah. is, is that, I mean, is that the general idea that you're trying to follow here and that you're, you're ultimately applying a domain specific adaptationist lens to this grand problem of morality, right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, the short answer is yes, a more domain specific approach, but also a much um, more granular focus on sex and mating. So just to give you one example, um, we've discovered things that no moral theorists talk about. Like, for example, I mean, some of the things are obvious. So um, um, having sex with people who are underage or, or incest, that's something that has been studied and, and, and people more moralize about incest. And Deb Lieberman's done some very cool work on, on uh, that incest avoidance adaptations. But, but, but consider these. Um, is it uh, moral or immoral for a someone to sleep with a, with the, a member of an enemy group? Right. So, like well, an, an outgroup member, basically. An outgroup member, uh, and it turns out there's an interesting. I hate. I don't. I'm not going to spill the beans too much because we're still doing this. But it turns out there's a, there's an interesting sex difference there. People regarded as more immoral for women to sleep with the an enemy group than for men to do it. And I, and I think there's a very compelling evolutionary explanation for that. Um, and so we're discovering things about moralizing, um, sleeping with the enemy, outgroup sex, uh, infidelity, different aspects of infidelity, same-sex sexual conduct, which is really interesting. Um, and um, so, uh, so anyway, to get back to my original thread, I keep discovering new and interesting facets of mating and sexuality that keep me excited. Um, even, you know, or, or even another one is homicide. I got, I got a detour on homicide. I thought I want to stop studying mating for a while. I'm just going to study why people kill each other, uh, motives for murder. But it turns out many of the motives for murder can be traced back to mating. Right. So you you can run, but you can't hide from mating. Of course, most notably is the, the one that I remember from Homicide, Daily Wilson, is that the most dangerous guy, in a, the most dangerous man in a woman's life is, of course, her partner. And right. he kills her uh, because of either re suspected or realized infidelity because right. of paternity uncertainty. So, yeah, so you can't, you, you, you can't stray too far away from, from mating. But coming back to your earlier point about... Uh, uh, sleeping with the enemy. I mean, I think that if you were to do a content analysis of certainly the Abrahamic religions, uh, you would find complete uh, confirmation of your hypothesis, right? I mean, yes. uh, Muslim women can't sleep with uh, non-Muslim men, but Muslim men can certainly sleep with non-Muslim women. Uh, I even have a personal anecdote. Uh, 
of course, this, this doesn't carry scientific weight, but oftentimes personal anecdotes speak to a reality. Uh, I remember many years ago, there was a, wom- a woman friend of mine who uh, was renting an apartment from a, a Hasidic man, a Orthodox Jew, and uh, she was a student struggling to, to pay her, her rent. And at one point, he came on to her, suggesting that they could come to some sort of uh, you know, sexual agreement. This was a Hasidic, supposedly pious man. And then when she said, well, but I mean, uh, what about, I mean, you, you'd be cheating on your wife and so on. And his answer was, but no, but that's okay. You know, you're not, you're not Jewish. And so it doesn't quite count the same way. So there was some mechanism by which, yeah. by which he could justify the fact that in this case, sleeping outside the faith was somehow not as serious of a moral transgression had it as had it been a Jewish woman. So, so I think I think you will find what you're looking for. It seems very uh, likely yeah. that yeah. Well, that well, that's I mean, it's interesting that that's a great story because it illustrates another thing which we're exploring, which is um, uh, moral hypocrisy or sexual hypocrisy. Um, and and most people think about now. Rob Kurzban has written some excellent. Um, um, his book on morality is an excellent analysis of some aspects of the hypocrisy, but but there are other aspects that he doesn't really cover, and so and one of them has to do with sexual double standards. And most people, when they think about sexual double standards, they think, well, double standards for men versus women. But I actually think that, and this is we, what Kelly Asal, my uh, star graduate student, and I are working on this together. Um, that what we're finding is there's a, a there are other aspects of double standards, and one of them is in, captured by your story, which is a double standard of what's okay for me to do morally versus what's okay for my partner to do morally. So, and and yes, okay for me if I have sex with someone else, but not okay if my wife has sex with someone else. So, so uh, the moral hypocrisy. Um, is uh, or, or these sexual double standards? So it's a double standard, but it's not men versus women; it's self versus partner, or self versus my rivals, you know, or my partner versus the the my neighbor's wife who I want to have sex with, you know. That that our double our double standards really have to be looked at through the prism of uh, an evolutionary lens that that captures the different interests depending on. Who's doing the sleeping? Interesting. Here's a maybe I shouldn't say this publicly. Maybe you and I should pursue this as a as a separate topic. But it actually comes from a undergraduate project uh, from my students this semester. They looked at uh, the sexual double standard uh, within the context of homosexual unions, and the way that they tried to do it is by looking at the sexual roles of the individuals. So for example, if they were if you were a predominantly bottom, this is the context of of homosexual males, if you were a bottom or the so-called passive uh, participant versus the the top or the dominant, would would you be could you replicate some of the dynamics in the heterosexual context by using the sexual roles within the homosexual context? Now, of course, I don't think that the data that the methodology necessarily uh, was to standard of a scientific paper, but I certainly think it's the genesis of an interesting idea of taking some of these mechanisms that uh, we find in heterosexual contexts and that demonstrate their power by 
that replicating them within a homosexual context. And the, the example that comes to mind is with pornography, right? Uh, the idea that, for example, homosexual men have the exact same proclivity for pornography that heterosexual men do. The only thing that changes is the target of their desire. That speaks yes. to the fact that it's a male thing. It's not a sexual orientation thing, right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, all everything you're saying is, you know, have to give credit to Don Simons uh, right. in his 1979 book. Is he 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 predicted all that? Right. He had that. I think that that book, in my mind, remains the the best um, single book on the evolution of human sexuality. He had not that he was right about everything, uh, but that uh, he was right about most stuff and had a deeper. In, in, I mean, he was in many ways the first evolutionary psychologist or the first modern evolutionary psychologist, I should say. I view Darwin as the first evolutionary psychologist. True, true. Uh, okay, so let's now, I mean, we could continue or we could come back to some of your research, but what I'm interested in, at least making sure that we cover today before we end our chat, is some of the detractors, right? I mean, so I could probably have you sit here and explain some of this work and it just, to me at least, seems so profoundly obvious that that's true and that there are, there's no other game in town. It's not as though there's some alternate framework that can remotely explain things as elegantly, as parsimoniously, and as correctly as evolutionary psychology. Yet both you and I, uh, and I don't doubt that you might have experienced it more than me, uh, although trying to Darwinize the business school has not been an easy endeavor. Uh, so we've faced endless uh, you know, animus, sometimes the obstacles are cognitive-based obstacles, uh, sometimes they're affective-based in terms of the people who are the detractors, right? So some, sometimes it's ideological. So could you maybe first comment on sort of the general animus that you've experienced and then maybe give us some, you know, classic examples, some of the most infamous examples of, you know, sort of the tsunami of blowback that you received in your career? Well, you know, I don't know if there's been a tsunami of blowback, uh, you know, because a lot of the people who don't like it just don't say anything. Um, uh, but, but yeah, you're right there. It's, it's the animosity toward it. it it's almost overdetermined uh, by multiple causes, and you've mentioned some of the major ones. Um, I like to say that, that, that evolutionary psychology is an equal opportunity effect Offender, uh, in that it, from the in the political spectrum, it offends those on the on the left uh, because they, I think, erroneously perceive that it's antithetical to their um, goals to make make create a just society or or achieve their ideological goals. Um, it's it's not, in fact, antithetical to those goals, but they perceive it as such and are more blank slaters. But it's also offensive to those on the religious right who don't like evolution, you know, to start with. And so, so that's why I said we're kind of equal opportunity offenders. But I also think that there is, um, um, uh, well, you've identified the major thing. I have colleagues now who are studying some of the cognitive impediments uh, that, that, that weirdly our evolved psychology interferes with our ability to exactly understand. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, you know, and I mean, another way of saying that is we, we weren't designed to be dispassionate scientists. But, but I find that one 
um, one technique or, or strategy that's effective in overcoming some of these cognitive biases is to talk about other species. So, um, and Kurzban actually has a few, uh, Kurzban is in my mind because I just recently read uh, the one of um, the last couple chapters of his book, and he has this very amusing example of uh, a contrast between the way that evolutionists think and psychologists think, and he, and he uses the example of a lion, a male lion comes in, displaces the resident lion and, and kills the cubs of the female, and then the female mates with the lion who just killed her cubs. And, and so, Chris being like, he, he says, well, perhaps, as some psychologists would say, that the female lion wanted to uh, boost her self-esteem uh, because she was feeling bad about her cubs being killed. And, she goes through the, and, and you see how silly some of these um, explanations are, but if it were humans doing it, people you know, invoke the human. So I think one, one strategy for getting around some of these cognitive biases is to look at these phenomena in other species. Um, but um, the other thing, as you know, is in social sciences, there, there's uh, a huge amount of uh, inertial baggage that, that the field carries having to do with buying into a blank slate um, uh, and the notion that there's been this erasure of human nature, um, and uh, and as Pinker and others have talked about, the, the noble savage, you know, that, that in our natural state we were just inherently peaceful and good and there was no conflict and uh, all that. And, and, and so there, people have these um, visions of what they want humans to be like. Uh, and so if we discover, and there are wonderful and altruistic and cooperative things about humans, of course, there's huge literature on that. But finding that there's also conflict and nastiness and selfishness and warfare and other things that might be part of our evolved psychology, that upsets people. Uh, so, um, so with respect to my, my particular work, I, it's been an interesting history. So um, I have had people early on, like I had some fairly uh, prominent people in the field. I remember this one, I was in Italy at a conference with uh, – Gazaniga and and another person who I won't mention, but is very prominent in the field. And you know, we had a couple glasses of wine and we were chatting. and And he said, "David, this is early in my career. I just started publishing stuff like the Thirty Seven Culture Study and the Jealousy Work." He said, "I will never say this publicly, but I think your work is great. Keep doing what you're doing." You know, or or there's a very well-known social psychologist um, at the University of Michigan, whose name I also won't mention, but he would come into my office and he said, I will never say this outside this room, but I think your work is great. And if I were a younger man, I would go into evolutionary psychology, but he wouldn't say it outside my office. So, so there is sort of um, support from high status people in the field, but sort of behind the scenes, right. you know, um, because they're vested within their own paradigms, right? Uh, I, I've actually sort of documented this anecdotally that sometimes when I give a lecture, at, actually I gave a lecture at University of Michigan, your former school. I actually gave two lectures when, when, I, when my first book came out. One was in the psychology department, one was in the business school. Everything went smoothly in the psychology department. In the, in the business school, I couldn't finish a single sentence. I probably didn't get through one-third of my, <laughs> my, my uh, slides. And uh, what I noticed was that there was a clear pattern whereby the more junior audience members and going down all the way to the doctoral students, 
listen to the stuff and said, geez, this is gorgeous. This makes perfect sense. And then as you sort of went up the hierarchy, uh, the sort of the publicly vociferous ones were the really senior folks because they because they view incorrectly that if you are right, somehow their life's work is meaningless. Now, in some cases, if you are right, they are indeed wrong, right? I mean, to, to, to argue that there are no innate sex differences is wrong. There is no way to, to slice that one in any yeah. other way. But there are other ways by which, for example, we could rely on the epistemological distinction between proximate and ultimate explanations, where I could say, hey, what you're doing at the proximate level is great, and all I'm doing is offering some other epistemological lens from which to fully explain the phenomenon. Now, that's been actually successful in my case yeah. when I try to convince people, because as long as you sort of demonstrate that they're not going to be out on the street if you are right, then they're a bit more open to it. Yes, yeah. But uh, I've had a similar experience where um, the younger generation uh, is tends to be much, much more open and receptive to evolutionary ideas. Uh, undergraduates and, and graduates. Um, so, um, you know, yeah, I think there is, for, you know, for, for sometimes for obvious, I think there are two things going on there. One is the one that you point to, which is that, you know, the more senior people, their all their their prestige, their status, their reputation is all tied up in what might be an outmoded paradigm, and that's not welcome news. You know, you don't want to get get to the end of your career and realize, oops, I I was wrong. Um, uh, but but then the the other is, I think that people um, their thinking ossifies with increasing age, and it becomes more and more difficult to accept new ways of thinking, especially that truly shake up or dramatically change the way you need to think about things. And so, and so I think there's an age effect that's sort of independent of the prestige threat, you know, that's motivating that. So, yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more. Now going back, drilling down some of the uh, sources of the, you know, the things that detractors say, Maybe the one that annoys me the most, and I have actually gone to great pains to sort of try to catalog these. I do so, for example, in chapter one of The Consuming Instinct, which you were kind enough to write the foreword uh, to. Uh, the one that upsets me the most, because it's typically levied by otherwise intelligent fellow academics, is the one on just so storytelling. It genuinely pisses me off to no ends. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, the truth is that it's the exact opposite that is right. right. The right. fact that, 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 you know, we use, and of course you know about this because you were some of, you know, one of the first to sort of talk about this, uh, you know, the building of these pneumological networks of cumulative evidence. So that, for example, when you were talking about using comparative psychology, right? Using interspecies comparisons. Well, that's actually one of the lines of evidence. We could also go to developmental psychology. We could also look at, uh, you know, medical data, genetic data. We could look twins registry. We could do all sorts of things to try to, you know, uh, uh, validate an adaptive argument. So if anything, if you're a good evolutionist, you're actually doing exactly the opposite of what you're repeatedly accused of. Is there any way to slay the this immortal dragon of stupidity? Or is it one of those things that could never be, you know, killed? Well, well, um, I, I think that there there is hope. It, it is an unfortunately a, uh, a pernicious meme um, that that Stephen Jay Gould started. But it, but I'll, I'll point out one paradox and then just say one success story with respect to combating that issue. Um, 
the the paradox is that sometimes uh, a critic will simultaneously claim that your hypothesis has been falsified and then an, an next paragraph say it's a just so story uh, <laughs> and can't be empirically falsified and sometimes those occur in the same paper um, and so uh, and so that's but but my success story involves I think you you previously interviewed Jerry Coyne yes so uh, uh, one of the papers that we wrote apparently um, was influential in changing his mind so he used to be um, quite hostile to evolutionary yes, yes. psychology and um, and I don't know I don't know the details of exactly what caused him to change his mind but I've corresponded with him a little bit and one of the things that he really liked was this American psychologist paper that that uh, my lab published Jamie Con Jamie Confer and several other graduate students and then me in American psychologists uh, and one of the things that we documented was evolutionary hypotheses that had been falsified or for which empirical evidence looks like they do not support is, is a more cautious way of saying that. So things like the kin altruism theory of homosexuality and we mentioned some others and Jerry Coyne was impressed by that, that yet you can point to hypotheses that have been, uh, you know, if not falsified or refuted, uh, at least the evidence has uh, doesn't support them, and so we can say we can move on now. They are no longer good horses to bet on. So, so if we can change his mind, at least there, I think there there is hope. But I think it's it's also the 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 more pessimistic view, which also has some merit, is that it's an excuse for people not to act, not to actually look very closely or learn a body of theory and evidence that they don't want to look at. So, oh, we know that it's just a bunch of just-so stories. Well, boy, if it were just a bunch of just-so stories, how would this work get into the top empirical journals in the field? You think, you think the editors just say, oh, it's a just-so story, let's publish it. Right. No, these are journals that have rejection rates of 90 95%. So it's just empirically false uh, you know that now. Now, having said that, of course, it, it is true that some evolutionary hypotheses are formed, uh, formulated more precisely uh, than others. And there are there's bad work in the field, and there are, there are sloppy hypotheses and all that. I mean, you get a mixed bag in any field. Um, but but I like to view a field not by its worst work, but by its best work. So. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, I think in the case of Jerry, I, I've gotten to know him. I think first, uh, uh, probably the reason why he was able to be swayed by your article, and I, I was aware of his original animus and his sort of conversion later. I think it's because he's first intellectually honest, and also maybe he has a epistemological humility, right? I mean, which is exactly what you would expect of a serious, honest scientist, right? Yeah. Uh, I will go where the truth is. I think the problem lies in the fact that EP or the animus towards EP is so often driven, as we both agree, by ideology. And so it becomes difficult then to combat ideology in the same way that it becomes difficult to argue against a creationist, right? There's no amount of evidence that I could show you pointing right. to the evidence of evolution uh, that will sway you that, you know, young earth creationism is not correct because there's always a way that you could concoct some bullshit story to try to counter 
whatever right. evidence I'm giving you. So I think that's the problem. So so Jerry Coyne is not really the problem because we know that he is going to impartially weigh the evidence. The problem is to kind of go through the walls, the defensive walls, the ideo- ideological walls. And I'm not sure that that's ever going to be achieved. Now, yeah. Here's an, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Maybe you can yeah. comment on that, then I'm going to say something else. Go ahead. Yeah, well, well, I think that, you know, I mean, it's a barrier. But um, my my view is is more optimistic in the following sense that uh, I think that within each branch of, of psychology anyway, um, as the empirical evidence starts to build and build within each area, um, it will reach a point where it will be impossible to ignore and people will have to learn evolution. I mean, so, so that's A and B. Part of the problem is an educational one. So um, there's not a single graduate uh, program, to my knowledge, in psychology that requires graduate students to get a PhD to take even one single course in, evolution, in evolutionary biology or, ev- or biology, period. Uh, and that's a travesty. So you have people who the, the most important theory of organic or of life on earth and you can get a PhD and not have to know about it. And, I mean, and, and you wouldn't be able to do that for every other species other than humans, right? right? In every other case, you'd have to, but somehow humans, we abdicate biology. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, this has come up in, I mean, I've been in three, a faculty member in three different departments and sometimes the issue comes up, well, what should we require of our graduate students? And, uh, and a couple of times I've suggested, well, how about a course in evolutionary biology? And people go, no, no, no. They need to take more statistics. So we need to add a more statistics requirement or, or a chemistry requirement. So everything seems – but no one seems to think it's important to, uh, to um, take an evolution course. So, now, but, do, you think, do you think that's, that's in part because uh, people are concerned, at least when it comes to stats – which sort of, I love this term by Sternberg and Grigorengo, which is a paper from 2001 in American Psychologists where they were uh, accusing the social sciences, I think in general, but psychology in particular, of suffering from methodological fixation, right? You know, I'm a priming guy. Everything I do is priming. I'm a no. whatever. You this right? And so, of course, it's the old sort of adage that, you know, to the guy who's got the, the hammer, the world looks like it's full of nails. And so people are very concerned about training graduate students to do good science and therefore they become great methodologists and and believe me i see this very much in in consumer behavior where you've got great social scientists the ultimate problem that they study i don't mean ultimate in the evolutionary sense but the, the final problem that they study might be profoundly trivial and banal and no one cares about but my goodness i'm going to tackle this with all the right methodology mm-hmm. and frankly just my my genetic makeup is such and to a fault because i'm not a careerist in that sense i just could never play that game i'm i'm in it mm-hmm. to to just navigate through intellectual landscapes to hopefully learn new things hopefully to discover new things and so i don't have time life is short i don't have time to sort of play the bullshit careerist games mm-hmm. uh, but the, but that's how People are trained, correct? Yeah, yeah, I think they, they, they are. And there's also a certain amount of uh, self-replication. Um, so professors train their graduate students to do what they did and with the theories that they 
adopt and the methods and so forth. But, but I think that there, there is hope though. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I'm impatient and, and maybe you're impatient too. I mean, I want it to happen a lot faster. Uh, but, but it has, it has, it is happening. There is a scientific revolution and things now look very different than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh, there are more evolutionary psychologists. There are more super bright PhDs coming out in, in evolutionary psychology. Um, and so the, the numbers are growing and growing. And, and the importance of the contributions um, is noteworthy, I think. So, so, for example, like if you're a social constructionist, where, where are the, all the important discoveries that you can point to? Um, no. Maybe the, <laughs> oh, we're both we're both quiet because we're trying to come up with one. <laughs> right, right. Whereas where, where people have come up as, and you mentioned some examples earlier with with different um, domain specific analysis of disgust. Um, the field of vision is changing now with the, uh, understanding um, things like the uh, the the descent illusion and that uh, various basically error management biases in the in the visual system in the auditory system and so and so you can point to important discoveries or like you mentioned Daly and Wilson's work on homicide and uh, the risks of uh, step parenthood and you can point to a ton of important discoveries that simply were not known prior to people applying an evolutionary lens to it um, and and I think the discoveries you can point to lacking an evolutionary lens are um, Oh, fewer in number. I'll, I'll add to that. So there's a paper that I always uh, or I often uh, assign in my, uh, certainly in my graduate courses. Uh, it was written by Davis in 1971. It was a philosophy of science paper. The, the title of the paper is That's Interesting! Exclamation point. Uh, are you familiar with that paper? I'm not, no. Oh, you know what? I'm going to have to send it to you. And mm -hmm. so what he does in this paper, now this is a paper that's now what, you know, you know for over 40 years old. What he basically does is he sort of identifies 12 criteria. Uh, they're not exhaustive. They're not the only criteria, but he, he identifies 12 criteria that would have to be met. One or more would have to be met for you to be able to sort of exclaim, uh, pronounce, that's interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And so using that idea, I would argue that, you know, when I open up, say, a evolution and human behavior journal... And it's not because I'm biased, because I'm, I'm an evolutionist myself, but almost every single paper that I read the title, I go, God damn, that's interesting. I want to read that. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, that's literally true. I mean, there's almost never a paper that I read the abstract and go, well, what a bunch of bullshit. I, I, I'm not interested in this. I want to drill down. No. Take me to some other journals. Well, I probably would bet that maybe there's a 1 in 50 rate where I say, I'm willing to waste my valuable time reading this now. Right. So, so I think there is something endemic to evolutionary explanations and the type of topics that we we tackle that just makes them interesting. What, however we epistemologically define the term interesting, it doesn't matter. But just mm -hmm. in terms of getting people excited, just in terms of how the public reacts to, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, if I talk about some sort of non-evolutionary consumer thing, uh, I can guarantee you it's going to generate much less sort of visceral attention than yeah. anything I talk about that is evolutionary, right? Yes. Yeah, I indeed. And, and, and I think, 
you know, sort of circling back to picking up on that point and circling back to an earlier point that we talked about with regard to uh, the age effect, I teach an undergraduate evolutionary psychology class. Now, it's listed as an upper division class, and most of the people who take it are happen to be psych majors just simply because they have priority. And often, so they take it, let's say, in their senior year or junior and senior, they take it after they've taken a bunch of other psych classes. And the reactions I get are, I would say, maybe 30 to 50%, depending on the semester, will say, this is the first psychology class that I've taken where everything makes sense. Or will it puts it all together? Or, you know, why isn't this taught earlier? This could have been so beneficial in my other psychology classes. And so, and so there is um, a kind of um, awakening that people experience uh, when they're exposed to it properly. And so a full semester of having it is, is enough of a dose to get people totally hooked on it. Um, reading one Newsweek article or something like that or an online blog is not, a, not enough, you know, of an exposure. So, um, so, but to me, that's encouraging. The fact that it, that it is, it does pass the sniff test, the importance test. Um, and people know it. I mean, it deals with stuff they know is important. It's, it's not by chance that sex and mating and conflict and, you know, all the, all the things that we study are, are, um, you know, fascinating to people. Well, and I talk, so in, in several of my books, I talk, I, so I introduce this term, uh, fossils of the human mind. Cultural products are fossils of the human mind, right? That, you know, human brains don't fossilize, right? The paleontologists can look at skeletal remains and in fossils to study the phylogenetic history of a species. Well, our brains, they're organic, they don't fossilize, but the cultural products that they leave behind do fossilize. Right. And so I can study the ancient Greek tragedy and completely connect with it because precisely of what you said, right? Because it's about sibling rivalry and uh, status and, in, in, you know, intrasexual derogation and uh, sexual conquest and parent-offspring conflict. So that's the stuff of movie themes and song lyrics and religious yeah. narratives. So everything that tickles our artistic fancy is not out of magic. It's precisely because they are they are catering to these evolutionary things that we find so innately interesting. I mean, that's why uh, Maury Povich, every second show, is about, you know, doing, administering a DNA paternity test to the guest to see <laughs> whether he's, whether that guy's been cuckolded or not, right? Yeah. It's not, be, it's not because the producers can't come up with some other idea. It's because they know that that idea repeated over and over again will assure ratings, right? So commercial products are successful because they adhere to our human nature. So there right. you go. Right. I know. I mean, I think, yeah. And I think that's a great metaphor that you have. Um, uh, and I actually, um, I give a talk where I, I actually give a talk on the mating and marketing occasionally. Um, and this is up your, your alley. I'm assuming but, that my invitation to speak can, can continuously gets lost in the mail at, in your class. <laughs> this is occasionally I get invited to give talks to groups of business people. Ah, okay. But but one of the things that I do is I've, I've and I can send this to you. But I have some uh, old ads um, that really capture, uh, and I'm sure you have a whole collection of these that capture certain principles. So like there's this one of uh, Michelin tires, uh, and there's a there's a picture of a tire, and then there's a picture of a baby in the tire, and then they say buy Michelin, uh, and the t the the title is something like. 
you've got a lot riding on your tires. You know, and it's like, yes, people, you know, kinship, you know, offspring. Or, or another one, here's another one that I think is really interesting. There was this old uh, beer commercial for a beer that's actually no longer made, but it was, I thought it was a brilliant commercial, and it was for, for Schlitz beer. And it said, um, you only go around once in life, so you might as well grab for all the gusto you can. And, and so basically what this is parasitizing, is, is, as you know, is, is the uh, steepness of future discounting. Um, and so it's it's a commercial aimed at trying to get people to discount. Or you know what? Another one that did that was Ashley Madison. More recent example, AshleyMadison.com uh, said their their slogan is "Life is short, have an affair." Oh, you know? I, I covered this in my books, but yeah, yeah. yeah. okay, yeah. So which which is brilliant though, because it's the same basic principle. I go, yeah, shit, I'm gonna die. Um, and what am I doing? You know, spending all my time delaying gratification. <laughs> they have another one. Monogamy is monotony. <laughs> That's uh, another one is, uh, I think it was Health Canada. They came out with a uh, an ad for uh, impotence. Uh, to, to, it turns out that epidemiologically, if you're a young male, uh, you know you're unlikely to typically suffer from sexual dysfunction. But what what really assures that you might fall in that category is if you're a heavy smoker. And so they basically show a. Uh, a cigarette that's limp, right? Okay. And and I and that's a beautiful example of demonstrating how an evolutionary. I mean, I, right? If I'm 21 years old, I don't really care about the possibility of having heart disease when I'm 78, right? I mean, that's in the future. I'm going to be immortal. It doesn't matter. But telling me that maybe tonight I won't be able to sexually perform with that gorgeous girl that I'm trying to get with, well, it doesn't take much of an evolutionary psychologist to understand why that might appeal to to my trigger, right? Yeah. So so as we're talking about, this, I guess that's a nice way to sort of move into our last segment. Uh, so what we're talking about here is applications of evolutionary psychology. In this case, we're talking about in advertising and, and marketing and consumer behavior. But more generally, of course, you know, evolutionary psychology could be applied or evolutionary theory could be applied across countless domains of human import. As for example, I had Randy Nessie on the show, and of course, he's one of the pioneers of applying evolutionary theory to medicine. So, do you think that that's really some of where the the gold nuggets? Are going to be coming in terms of the future trajectory of EP, trying to take that universal explanatory key and unlock it in new domains. Because my feeling is, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, there is maybe a bit of staleness that's setting in in terms of some of the classic. I mean, right? We could do one more study on facial symmetry, but I mean, we get the general storyline. I'm not sure if we need one more study on facial symmetry. Uh, so is that is that your feeling that the, the next roads are the ones where we apply EP to all these different exciting fields, law, medicine, architecture, business, and so on? Yeah, I think in part, but I think I'll give a two-part answer to your question. I think that, that the first part is that um, I think there, so, so I think some of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked, uh, to use a different metaphor. But there's still a lot of, uh, to mix metaphors, there's still a lot of gold to be discovered, uh, maybe uh, a little higher up in the branches. Uh, and so I think that there are important discoveries to be made um, that we still uh, don't have a clue about and, and are making discoveries. And so, so yeah, uh, on certain in certain domains like symmetry or waist-tip ratio or something, yeah, I think they've we know most of what we need to know about those, but new domains are always being discovered. 
and even in the realm of beauty, for example, um, my former graduate student, uh, David Lewis, now a professor, uh, discovered uh, lumbar curvature. Oh, I love that one. I actually had it on the list. Tell us about that. That's a great one. I love that. Uh, And then, uh, well, it's just... um, uh, and this is this is David Lewis's idea. I mean, I'm I'm happen to be a co-author on the paper, but a very minor one. It, it's really his idea that that um, male and female spines have to be differently designed because when women get pregnant, the center of gravity shifts and forward and puts a tremendous amount of torque on the spine. And so, if women had the same um, a spinal structure that men mended, it would really be problematic in terms of the torque. And so, uh, and so he calculated, you could sort of biomechanically calculate what the optimal, um, curvature of the spine should be if you're trying to minimize the torque that's going to be placed on it. Uh, and, and then his hypothesis was that, that we should find that optimal level of curvature the most attractive and then did studies um, which basically demonstrated precisely that um, and so that's something that that's an example of a cue that it's, it's not symmetry it's not waist-to-hip ratio but it's something else that um, was discovered that wasn't known before and 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 again this gets back to a point you made earlier you you wouldn't even think um, of doing something like that if you hadn't had an evolutionary lens didn't have an evolutionary lens. So I think there's still a ton of stuff to be discovered uh, in terms of basic knowledge about the human mind. But I do agree with you. I think that applying it to these different domains is also going to be really pivotal pivotal and exciting, hugely exciting. So you're doing uh, uh, important work in consumer behavior and marketing. I think there's a huge, you know, I'm – I would be shocked, and to, I'm shocked to hear that there's resistance in business schools, um, because people stand to gain a huge amount if they adopt this. So let me interject before you go on. Here, here's the the asterisk. The business practitioners were on board with me from day one. It's the business academics who exhibited uh-huh. the resistance, right? Uh, yeah. So if I give a talk in front of uh, you know advertisers. They go, oh, this is fantastic stuff, right? Because they don't they don't give a damn about paradigmatic fights and all the sort right. of if ethological defenses of one's territory, right? Uh, they yeah. just want what works, and therefore yeah. they're on board. They're Darwinian beings. They get it. It's the academics that who are the problem. Yeah. So yeah. So but I and also uh, other other areas. So, um, you know, uh, people like Michael Bang Peterson are applying it to political science. So it's starting evolutionary psychology is really the foundation for all fields that deal with human behavior. Full stop. So that's beautiful. You know, law deals with human behavior. Um, political science, obviously sociology, anthropology, economics, uh, all these fields of uh, medicine you mentioned, um, anything dealing with human behavior has to have evolutionary psychology as its foundational core. Uh, and so I think more and more is, of that's going to happen. Some fields are more resistant than others, as you know. So sociology is going to be maybe the last one to fall because uh, they're, you know, they're uh, – <laughs> Uh, anyway. Well, because they're very steeped in ideology, right? So yeah. that's where some of the social justice warriors are, and therefore, by 
based on what we've talked about earlier, they're the ones who are going to erect the biggest uh, defenses. So, yeah. But there is a guy, Sanderson, I think, who's who's done some work at the Nexus uh, and Lopreato, I think, or Lo, I can't remember his guy's name. There are a couple of guys that have done work at the Nexus of Darwinian uh, theory or evolutionary theory and sociology. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, there, there are many fewer of them in sociology true. than there are in, in psychology. True, true. You know, uh, yeah. So as we end this, uh, is it, so you talked about your, uh, your forthcoming, your revised uh, 1994 Evolution of Desire book. Are there any other projects that you'd like to tell us about that we otherwise wouldn't have known about before we wrap this up? Anything else you want to share? Um, well, you know, um, uh, yeah, no, nothing, uh, startling. So on the, the, in terms of research, the, the most exciting research project that I'm doing now is the sexual morality stuff. And I'm hugely excited about that in terms of books. Um, after I write the, uh, revise the evolution of desire, um, I'm going to, uh, write a book. I've been wanting to write this for a long time, but about a book on conflict between the sexes. Um, because I think there is there there needs to be a book about that. And there's a huge amount of material at this point, a huge amount of empirical research and brilliant theories. And, and conflict between the sexes is something that people wring their hands about. They pull their hairs out. They get it. Everyone experiences it. Everyone knows people who have experienced it. Um, but people don't think about it in a deeply evolutionary way. And I think we have the conceptual tools now to really understand um, sexual conflict. Will this be a book targeted to the public at large, or will yes. it be an academic? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, it will be at the written at the level of the evolution of desire. Oh, nice. Okay. Oh, looking forward to that. So, when when is that one slated for? You think? Well, I I don't know. I, I, things always take longer than you think, as you know. Uh, but probably in a, it, I should be, it should be out in a couple of years. Wonderful. Hey, David, I could keep you here for another five hours, but I know how busy you are. Thank you so much for taking a bit of time to chat with me. Stay on the line. I'm going to stop it now. Uh, this will first appear on the Larry King Network, and then 24-plus hours later, it'll be uploaded on my channel. Thank you so much, David. True okay. honor to talk to you. Thank you. Great talking to you, too. Fun conversation. Thank you.